now from Isaiah. We'll be reading chapter 12 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1. It's a very short um, chapter. It comes at the very ending of a section in which judgment has been um, warned and declared in all of these 11 chapters. The reason is because of the sin of Judah. They would receive the the highest degree of, of judgment, which would be captivity. But along with those warnings came the promises of the Messiah. And also in chapter 11 came the promise that there would be a remnant. If they disobeyed and had to go captive, they could be encouraged that there would be a remnant. And at the end of all these promises, the warnings, because of the promised Messiah and the remnant comes this chapter, which is also called a hymn of thanksgiving. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Isaiah. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortedst me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. We open again our Bibles in Isaiah chapter 12. and We hope to consider this, this whole portion also in light of the whole context um, of this little chapter. But especially looking at verse 3. At the very center of this little hymn of thanksgiving, as I said, it's usually called or a song of trust. We read in verse 3, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. With joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Our our theme as we look at this passage is the wells of salvation. And as I mentioned, um, this little hymn of thanksgiving comes at the very end of this first portion of Isaiah. This, this is where we have arrived as we have gone through Isaiah in our prayer services um, from one time Or another, I have brought to the very Sunday service as certain passages you just want to share with more people. And we've arrived at this end um, of this section. And Thanksgiving is just this week. Um, I was meditating on the fact that this will be 
the first Thanksgiving that in my ministry here, um, I will not be here. And I started to, to miss that reality. It's been such a blessing to, um, to have Thanksgiving in a way by which we come and worship the Lord. It, it is not how I was brought up. Of course, back in Brazil, even Thanksgiving itself is, is not celebrated. Thanksgiving in America has made it whereby in other nations they think Thanksgiving is a good idea. So there, there is a Thanksgiving Day in Brazil. Um, the Catholic Church fostered that idea because they thought it is good to be thankful. It's, of course, disconnected with the history of the, the Puritans and the pilgrims here in America. But um, ever since my, my family and I went to Grand Rapids to start PRTS, um, Thanksgiving Day coming and going to church to, to start that day of giving thanks by worshiping the Lord. It's, don't ever take for granted that tradition, that reality. It is, it is a, such a blessed thing to worship the Lord on a day to give thanks. And so I will miss not being here this Thanksgiving day, this coming week. And so I am preaching my Thanksgiving sermon today because I, I, we've arrived at this chapter, and it's a Thanksgiving chapter. We, so it's a way of sharing our, our, our Bible studies on prayer services and also with the heart of Thanksgiving. And with, with all that, that is coming, as I said, this context, in these 12 chapters... Four times the Messiah has been predicted. It started in chapter 4. He is the branch of the Lord, beautiful and glorious. Then chapter 7, there is that sign that King Ahaz is given to receive by Isaiah. Remember, to his dismay, he says he does not want a sign, but God gives him anyway and gives it to us that a son would be born to the virgin. She would conceive, bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel. And then in chapter 9, that glorious passage, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then the fourth prediction is in chapter 11, just before this hymn of thanksgiving. And there the name Branch comes back. He is the rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch that would grow out of his roots. So the Messiah is clearly identified as coming from the line of David. It, it also identifies the Messiah as coming from an unlikely um, place because a stump is in essence dead, but there would be a little stem coming forth out of it. And, and so it speaks of the humbly begin, humbling beginnings of Jesus, but also the reality that, that as, as unlikely as it would seem, because that little twig, that little sprig, seems like there's no hope in it, he would become the Messiah. The government of this whole world would be upon his shoulder. Put those things together. That little twig, that little branch would be the very mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
But then the, the other element of great joy is that even though all of this warning is being given, that captivity would happen, the destruction of Jerusalem, you, you need to think of what this all would mean. This would, was given to a people before these things happened. You can imagine how precious it would be to them as they saw the things happening to remember Isaiah and all of the promises there. Because these very people, um, as they were older, and some of them had already died, and it would have been um, the little children who maybe grew up hearing Isaiah, then they're seeing the destruction of the temple, families being divided, Jerusalem destroyed, the, the best part of the people being taken captive into Babylon. That's when Daniel and his friends Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego went to live for 70 years captive. But then in chapter 11 is where the promise of a remnant is given. So God is saying in all of this judgment that you do deserve, there will be a little group to come back. And out of this group, my people will will continue. And see, I bring all of this because the chapter demands it. Because in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. See, in that day, as, as these people are given to come back, and, and in a way they would have sung this hymn at least three times in the treks because there was a group that came with Ezra, a group that came with Zerubbabel, and then a group that came with um, Nehemiah. And, and, and in each one of those um, pilgrimages back to Israel, it was that day that they were seeing this remnant going back. And then notice this, they say, Thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. They're remembering, we, we were captive for 70 years because of the anger of God, but now we're going back. His anger was turned away. So this is the reason for this little chapter. And, and what we're hoping to, to consider is this little verse of these wells of salvation and this invitation that, that well, it's in that very day. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And, and still as a little introduction, then there's this big picture. And boys and girls, this, again, God's Word's always giving you pictures. Do you see this? This is why you don't need, in a sense, a, a Bible full of pictures. It, it is full of pictures already. Well, these are the pictures of wells. Not just one well. They're wells of salvation. The water is one. It's not different kinds of waters. It's water, but from wells. Now, I don't want you to picture these wells in a place where you see wells here, but it may be in fields that, are, that, that might be even well watered. There might be a river and there may be rainfall and it might be a well in a field of green and everything beautiful. It's not a well in a place like that. The wells in the Bibli, bi, biblical geography were always in wildernesses. They were in places where you thought there was absolutely no hope and no water, but underground there were veins of water. And so as they would dig wells, sometimes they would find water, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they had to be very deep, sometimes they could be quite shallow. And once they found water, they protected that well because they were seen as sources of life. So what we have here is salvation being pictured as a well 
And so in our first point, we're going to draw water from these wells. The water drawn from the wells. It's, it's what the verse tells us to do. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so we will, we will meditate upon this water that is drawn out. And secondly, we will see how to draw the water. It's also through the picture we have a spiritual application. And then thirdly, the grand result of drawing the water. You think of people who have come very tired to this well. They finally drank and there's a result. There's something that will happen in their lives because they've been energized by the water that they found in these wells. So um, it is not new that water is being connected with salvation. In Revelation seven seventeen, we read, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And in this first point, we're, we're in essence going to see how, how so many biblical blessings and even the Trinity are connected with water and fountains and streams and rivers and water from wells. Um, Albert Barnes, the commentator, he says, Generally in the scriptures, streams, fountains, rivers are used as emblematic of the abundant fullness and riches, richness of the mercies which God has provided to supply the spiritual necessities of men. The idea here is, therefore, that they should partake abundantly of the mercies of salvation, that it was free, overflowing and refreshing like waters to weary pilgrims in the desert. So let's meditate upon this water that is drawn from the well. And, and what I want to do is think in terms theological what would be the first and most important figure of this water. Um, I could follow the sequence of the text and we will do that, but I thought it would be important to start with what is it you want to draw from that well? Water. But what is it that is the greatest blessing of this water that is connected to salvation? It is the water of the person of the triune God. Because notice what we read. It says in verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. The is is an equal sign. It's not just that God gives salvation. He is my salvation. And then later on we hear He is my strength and my song. He also become is become my salvation. And then it says, With joy to draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so we, we, are, we are distilling this water out of God Himself. And so, of course, the first thing to consider is God Himself as the water that is to be drawn. And, and this is important, beloved, because you do find many religious people who like the blessings from religion or the blessings from Christianity, but they're not really personally related with the God of Christianity. And it has to start there. And it has to start with the water, you could say, of the person of Christ. Because He is the go-to 
one so that you can have God and so that you can have the Holy Spirit. We start with the person of Christ. And, and I just want to bring some places in Scripture where we see this being so, so testified. Think of the Lord Jesus. Remember in John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the last day of that feast, there was something very um, um, climactic that happened regarding water, where with a golden cup, they would go to the pool of Siloam, where there was a fountain, they would draw water, and they would take it to the altar and pour it upon the sacrifice. And the whole ritual was done with a lot of joy. A lot of gladness. A lot of people think, and reading the commentators, they think that whole tradition began because of this very verse. Therefore, with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. And it was the Jewish people remembering all these blessings and drawing water out of Siloam, taking it over to the altar, and doing that with a great amount of joy and gladness. And when we read in John 7.37, note this, this was done in the last day. So while water was in everybody's minds because it was in their eyes and they were seeing water being taken up and people who were by the well saw it being driven, drawn out. People who were along the way saw it being taken and people who were by, by the altar saw it being poured out. There were people spread all over. But they were all with water in their minds because water was in their sight. And then Jesus said this, well, in John seven thirty seven, it says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. See, the Lord Jesus is openly saying, I am water that you should desire. Drink me. He's not saying, drink of me, I'll give you some water. He's saying, drink me. And in that whole context, of course, he makes clear that this is to trust in him. Um, Calvin, he considers this whole promise containing the whole of Christ's reign. This, this water from the wells. And then he says, it's the fountain is Christ in whom all God's benefits are imparted to us. For out of his fullness, as John says, we all draw. It remains, therefore, that whenever we feel our want, we go directly to Him. So to say that this water is Christ Himself, it is to say that you, you draw from this well Christ, so you draw the love of Christ, and you draw the grace of Christ, and you draw the mercy of Christ, you draw the heart of Christ. And beloved, this is how you're to see. You committed a sin, your heart is heavy, you go to Christ, and you say, Lord, I need to draw from this well thy mercy and thy grace to cleanse my heart of sin. You draw from that well. The very pardoning grace of Christ. See, not just the pardon, but the Christ who pardons. You're drawing Christ. And, and notice this is so in context. The Messiah, as I said, was promised four times already. The branch, the glorious branch, the rod of Jesse, the, the, the one in whose shoulder sits the government of the whole earth, the, the wonderful counselor, etc., Draw him. Draw him. 
But then the person of the Father, you could say also the water of the person of the Father. I can really say this because it's astonishing to think of how many places in Scripture God Himself is also spoken of as a an element of water. Look at Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, in our hearts, we need water. We'll look for it somehow. But it's a great sin to look for water outside of God. He's saying, I'm the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 17, 13. The Lord, the fountain of living waters. And it is, in a sense, whom we think of first when we think for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Well, we'll go and draw water out of the wells of salvation. It's it's Jehovah himself. But this is why I started with the triune God. We, we will see it applies to all persons of the Trinity. But it's important for us to realize God himself is put forth this way as a fountain, as a river. John, a Psalm 68, 26. Bless ye God in the congregation, even the Lord from the fountain of Israel. The construct of this phrase is saying that the Lord is in essence the very fountain of of Israel. Psalm 87 7. All my springs are in thee. See, God is the fountainhead of the spring, and we have water out of him. Psalm 36 9. For with thee is the fountain of life. And then, thirdly, of course, the person, the water in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Jews, this is interesting that the Jews, as they looked upon this passage in their minds, they weren't thinking of the Messiah and they weren't thinking later, of course, of Jesus as the Messiah, but they did attribute this to the Holy Spirit. This water from the wells to the Holy Spirit. And in that very feast that I spoke of where Jesus said, if you're thirsty, drink of me, he also said this in John seven thirty eight. He said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then John explains what that means. The very next verse, he says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So you see, each person of the Trinity is symbolized, pictured as water. So when, when you read, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation, the first thing that we should think of is drawing God himself. He is this water. He is the fountain of this water. And then, of course, flows everything else. And now, secondly, let's follow the order of this passage. And the first thing we could say is the water of peace. Because look at verse 1. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. So there's a reality of anger, but an anger turned away. And that means you have peace. 
So what you draw out of this well, because of God and His mercy in Christ, there is peace. You could call it the water of reconciliation. You could call it the water that now you are right with God. Now, humanity has two problems. If you stop to think, there are two great problems. And one of them is because of the other. There's an initial problem, and because of that problem, we have a second one. The first problem is sin. And because of sin, there is God's wrath. Now, the world tries to wipe away sin and say it doesn't even exist, and they never like it to say that God is, not, that God is angry. You have many Christians who say that God is not angry. Um, as you evaluate this, it's very interesting to think that um, the very people who say that it's okay to be angry with God are usually the people who say God is never angry with you. And those are two lies because it's not okay to say that you can be angry with God because there's no reason to be angry with God. It's, it's someone acting without thinking. It is a sin to be angry With a God who is just to be angry. You know the sermon that Jonathan Edwards wrote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. See, you've probably heard how the, the culture we're living in is a God in the hands of angry sinners. That's how the culture is today. They're angry at God, and he's the only one who's not allowed to be angry at anybody. But you see what this text is saying, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. He is acknowledging that I was in captivity because of thine anger, but now thine anger has been turned away, so now there is peace. And you notice, beloved, if, if, if you dismiss the whole idea of God's anger, then you will dismiss the whole idea of God's peace. Well, you don't need any peace if God's never angry. But if you realize that your sin makes him angry, you will then realize you need this water called peace because that means his anger is averted. That's the Christian blessing. That's the evangelical message that there is God's anger, but in Christ it is averted. If we try to say God's not angry in a way where Christ is not even central, we're missing the whole gospel. Look what Matthew Henry says. He says, God has often just cause to be angry with us, but we have never any reason to be angry with Him, nor to speak otherwise than well of Him, even when He blames us. We must praise Him. God is sometimes angry with His own people, and fruits of His anger do appear. And they ought to take notice of this, that they may humble themselves under His mighty hand. Though God may for a time be angry with His people, yet His anger shall at length be turned away. This is the great message. It endures but for a moment, nor will He contend forever. By Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse, God's anger against mankind was turned away, for He is our peace. So God's anger is a reality. But when you draw from the wells of salvation, you draw the water of peace. 
and you are reconciled with God. And yes, now His anger is averted. And that's the gospel. That's the blessed news. But then thirdly, so, so the water of the triune God, the water of peace, and then thirdly, the water of pardon. And notice, as soon as it speaks of His anger being turned away in verse 1, it says, And thou comfortedst, comforted me. So, God's anger was turned away, and I was comforted. Now, this comfort came because the anger was averted. And why was the anger averted? Because God, in His mercy, pardoned. He forgave the sins of His people. The pardon of sin is what gives peace in your heart. If sin is still in you, there is no peace. As soon as sin is removed, there is peace. And so it's the water of pardon that we can think of next. The water of forgiveness. Don't we speak of the abundance, the plenteous of pardon that flows from the cross of Christ. Uh, water is so connected with the theme of forgiveness. That's why in the, in the baptism we have water and it's typifying a washing and how in faith in Christ our sins are washed away. They are cleansed. Now, it wasn't because God's people, having suffered for 70 years, that that was payment for their sins and now they could come back and they were forgiven. It wasn't their suffering that brought them peace. It was the suffering of Christ that brings us peace. It was His payment on the cross that brings the forgiveness of our sins and all our sins. Um, Every last one. Think, beloved, the moment you sin is a moment you should start feeling thirsty. You should start feeling a heart that yearns that that guilt be washed away. So you're thirsty for forgiveness. You're thirsty for cleansing. And when you go to God to quench that thirst, that is repentance. See, you're, you're coming, as it were, to that well. And your buckets, as it were, are just your confessions. You have sinned. You have transgressed. You deserve this very anger. Um, um, and, and, and you need it to be turned away. Lord, please cleanse me. Please pardon me. And See, you're you're drawing from the wells of salvation the grace of pardon because you're looking to the one who did it. It's not even your pleading that is what will bring the the forgiveness. No, you're, you're just trusting. You're just casting, as it were, your vessel for the water. That is repentance and faith. We'll see this in our second point. And what is it that cleanses you? It is Christ, His suffering on the cross. His having paid for those sins. And when you draw out that pardon, beloved, this is what's so blessing, what's such a blessing. It, it cleanses every sin, every stain. The, the sins that you remember, the sins that you even forgot, the sins that were very great, the sins that seemed smaller, the sins of omission, things that you should have done and you didn't, and the sins of commission, things that you should not have done but you did. All of those sins are washed away because Jesus suffered for all the sins of all His people. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 
So that all who believe are all those who can say these very words. All who repent are those who can be certain that he was bruised for our iniquities. So I can draw the water of pardon from this well of salvation. And fourthly and lastly, also following the pattern of the text. So, so we have peace and we have pardon And then in verse 2, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. And in that strength and in this might, we have what we could call the water of power. The water of strength. We, We could say so many more things. I could speak of the water of sanctification or the water of purity the water of justification the water of redemption of of being purchased by God even the water of prayer because as you draw from this well of salvation you learn how to pray and you're you're made able to pray but I'm I'm just keeping mainly to, to the words that I find in the text and here the Lord is my strength this is the water of power and it matches doesn't all of these match in one way or another what we're talking about boys and girls think of somebody who's been lost in the wilderness their water has run out they didn't calculate well they were on a trip from one city to the next they had to cross that long desert as in that area there were so many of and now they have no water and in their calculation there's still miles and miles to go for the next well they're running out of energy. They're running out of life. They're running out of strength. And then they sight that well. They have a sight of that well. And, and in, in all of that, trying to clamor to that well, there are probably horrific thoughts that what if it's dry? What if it has dried out? What if, what if it's broken and it's all full of dirt? What if I still have to dig to get to the water? But then they arrive... And they're able to cast a vessel in there. And you know that as, as they're bringing that up with a rope, and maybe the, the sun catches some reflection on, uh, on that water and it gleams back at you, just that sight will start doing the work. You're already energized just by the very sight of water. This is, this is biblically what happens. You have a sight of Christ. You, you start being strong already. A, a sight of Christ on the cross, if, if it is that pardon that you need, that pardon already starts to work on you because you're having a sight of Jesus. And it gives you strength. And then you take that water. And that water goes into your system and your circulation starts going and your brain starts thinking and your lungs start breathing. You are energized. Physically speaking, yes, you are made more alive because of that water. And spiritually spiritually thinking, yes, you look to Jesus, you look to God the Father, the Holy Spirit and His finished work and you have the spiritual strength that you need. So in our first point, we've, we've been drawing this water and seeing in how many ways this water can be thought of. It is God and all the blessings that flow from God. I could go on and on. There are many more blessings. 
But I'm keeping to, to just some of the thoughts here in our text. But the first thing that comes to our mind having thought of this in our second point is, well, how do I draw this water? Spiritually thinking. We know how to draw this water if we're there by the well. Physically thinking, we'll look for a bucket. We'll think of whatever receptacle can be thrown. You'll need a rope. If, if it's none of those things that you have, you're literally going to start thinking of climbing down and climbing up. You need that water or you die. How do you draw the waters of the wells of salvation? Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. See, that's the very well, right? It's God Himself. I will trust and not be afraid. Trust is the vessel. Trust is the bucket and the rope, you could say. And there's, of course, we, we can speak of repentance. Always, beloved, no, I, I, can't, I can't speak of faith without repentance. I might use the word faith more because of the text, but it never means apart from repentance. See, this is a soul who knows he needs Jesus. Or he dies. So he casts his bucket down. That's his faith. This is the picture that God has before us. That all you need to do is believe. And you will have the triune God. Believe and you will have the peace. Believe and you will have the pardon. Believe and you will have the strength. And, and notice how, how it's just amazing the parallels. Because if you're walking by that well and you're, and you're someone who does not believe, you will say, I will not walk another mile to a well that has no water. I don't believe there's water. And you have your companion saying, we need to check. No, but that's one mile that direction. Two miles, I know there's a well with water. And you're sitting beside him saying, but this is closer. But one who does not believe there's water in that well will not go that extra mile if he doesn't believe. You see, lack of faith is, is a complete end of the line. Who in their right mind will go one mile in the desert to a well that they, in their mind, think there is no water? There's even a logic to that. It would be a fool who would go to a well that he knows there is no water. But the one who believes will. And, and we're not talking about wilderness wells where, of course, I could argue with you that there may be water or no water. We're speaking of God, the triune God. And you do have souls saying, I will not believe because they, in their minds, think there's no water to be found in God because they think that God does not exist or they think that God does not love me or that God is too angry with me. And so they don't go that extra mile. They don't go even two steps. Lack of faith does not cast the bucket. Lack of faith does not unwind the rope. Lack of faith looks at the well and says, I do not need that well. I have water in my broken cisterns. Only they don't realize it's broken. Now, reading a portion in a sermon of Spurgeon, he looks at this very, this very phase, phrase. He, he is the master preacher on even the shortest verses. He has a sermon on, I will trust and not be afraid. That's the only words of his text. 
And he brought this that I hope to bring right now that, that is very emphatic. It is very applicable to our reality, the reality of certain souls. He said that there are people who invert this verse. And then he shows in what way? Three ways. Let me, let me show this real quickly. The text says, I will trust and be not afraid. First, he says that there are some who say, I shall not trust and not be afraid. This is the atheist, you could say. It's the person who believes there is absolutely no reason for fear. And he also thinks there's no reason to trust. Why will I trust a God who does not exist, who, who, who isn't even a figure to be considered, and, and, and I will not fear. My, my destiny is in my hands, and I have no fear of the afterlife, so they don't trust and they don't fear. But such soul will be met with horror and much dismay when they open their spiritual soul's eye after their death because they will meet with their creator and there will be eternal fear. But isn't it true? There are many who say, I will not trust and I will not fear. But then there are those who say, I I shall trust, but I will continue to fear. What did Spurgeon mean by, by those who say that and do that? These, these are, and, and as I read, I realize it's so true. I have met these people. These are poor souls who could never say they despise the Lord. They would be perhaps the last people who could ever say that God is not gracious, that God is not good, that Jesus did not die for sinners, that Jesus is the Son of God. They could perhaps repeat all of the confessions and they would say, yes, I stand by them. They would say, I'd rather die to deny any of these things. So they certainly have a very long rope and a very big bucket, only they're afraid. It's, it's, many of these have been called those with little faith because they're always wondering, could, could it be that it's just me? Could it be that, that, that I'm the one producing all of these things? I, I, I just know very, very historically that Jesus has existed and I will never deny any of these things. But their little faith has procured a little portion of pardon that soul has had little sights of Christ see because of it being little faith you can typify it with a little bucket a little cup and it does come and he sees a little bit of Jesus sometimes just drops of peace and of pardon and even of power it keeps them going and it only shows how really there is so much faith because they would never dare stop drawing from that well. So they fear. And how it would make them fearless if they only knew that God is so gracious they need not afraid. 
be afraid. The, the, the verse, perhaps, that could be to those souls. It's, it's God's very word to these very fearful souls. When I am afraid, I will trust in thee, in God whose word I praise. Have you noticed how that's a verse that should come first? If that's you, if you're afraid to say that you believe, if you're afraid to, to really say, I'm assured that God is my Savior, Well, then this is the verse for you. When I am afraid, I will trust in thee. See, stand by the well and do dare throw a vessel because you need that water. Keep confessing your faith. Keep saying, Lord Jesus, I need thee. And he is bringing that water to your very lips. And one day you'll be able to say, I will trust and not be afraid. From Isaiah 12, verse 2. Start with, when I'm afraid, I will trust. God will give you courage to say, I will trust and not be afraid of Isaiah. But then there's a third group. These are those who say, I shall not trust. And I shall fear. And what does he mean by these? Well, these are those who also lack assurance. And I would say that even among them, there may be two groups. There are some who mean it. There are some who don't. What what do I mean by that? There are some who say, I dare not believe. I can't believe. I'm afraid that I believe, if I say I believe, it is me, so I dare not do it. And I won't do it. And it has to be given. This is what I mean. There's some who say that and mean it. There's some who say that and don't. They say that, but they're really more like that second group. They still go to Jesus. And they still cast their bucket because they would die. They're true believers. They just don't even know it. But they are because they love Jesus. They stand by him. And then the Lord is graciously pouring his fountain, whether he casts his vessel or not, because he still believes in Jesus. But my fear is always of those who say what I just said and mean it. If they say, I will not believe, I need to wait for him to give me faith to believe, and they're, they're literally saying, I will not do it, then they are not believing. See, the ones who say that and mean that are, in a sense, the saddest case because these are people saying, I dare not believe when God's word is commanding to believe. I know there's a conflict. We can't, but God commands. So we need to humbly say, well, then, Lord, make me. Give it to me. I I, I trust what you are saying. I, I just don't trust my own heart. Be honest with the Lord. And that is faith, see? But the person who says, I will not believe, No one can do that to me. Only the Lord. And they just wait. And they really stay far. They don't go that mile to see if there's water. Because they say that will be me. It has to be the Lord. So those who don't believe actively, well then, if that's true, they're not saved because they're not believing. And that's why they lack assurance. Because they lack a new heart. 
This is always what, in our, in our circles, we know we talk a lot about people who lack assurance. Beloved, you have to have the sensitivity to, to help certain souls understand that it's not a battle between assurance or not when you are already unsaved. See, the greatest woe of a heart who is unsaved is not that he lacks assurance. It is that he lacks Christ. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be truly saved and just lack assurance when you think because that soul is saved. He has what he needs. If he dies, he goes to heaven. But think of that soul who goes on year after year thinking, I'm not sure if I'm saved, and he's really not saved. Have you noticed that there's even a sense where their lack of assurance provides a certain comfort? And it shouldn't. Because if they are unsaved, they shouldn't wonder if they're saved. They should be reconciled with the thought, I am unsaved. I am lost. If I die, I go to hell. You notice the, the, the flesh likes the thought that maybe I'm not saved. It's easier to live that way. Because you're somewhat comforted that maybe I am. But if that soul is not saved, that sense of lack of assurance is as dangerous as hell because that person will be, as it were, in a sleep in that state thinking, I'm saved, be safe because I'm not presuming. But in truth, down deep in the heart, the person is presuming that maybe they're saved, but maybe not. Well, God's word makes it very clear if you're saved. And this is where the soul has to ask the Lord, show me, reveal to my heart, Lord, am I saved? Are you even troubled that maybe you're not saved? You see, when you find people comfortably waiting for 20, 30 years, there's a very great danger that perhaps that person has been lost all these years, but they're somewhat comforted thinking that, you know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I'll wait to see. Those are those who say, I will not trust and I shall fear. That, that is no comfort because you must trust and then you won't fear. That's what, the, what Isaiah says. I will trust and not be afraid. Now, let me go quickly to our third point. This is just a conclusion. Look at the grand result of drawing the water from the wells. There are so many words describing what, what this heart, and now it's really the whole congregation because this is all plural. In that day shall ye say, meaning you all, praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted. Verse 5 speaks of singing, and verse 6 speaks of crying out and shouting. So you could put here the category of singing, of even writing books and preaching, proclaiming, evangelizing one-on-one, -on -one, or evangelizing from platforms and proclaiming what God has done. The picture here is, I have found the well in the wilderness, and I want the whole world to know. You are all thirsty here. There is water there. Just cast your bucket. Trust. Believe. That's how you draw water from this well. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, notice 
what God does in his word. He knows that our hearts can tremble in one way or another. That we can fit into that category of thinking, well, I I don't want to be the one. I don't want to presume that I have it all right. I I want the Lord to work in my heart with true faith. And I spoke of the casting of the bucket. And and you could even think with that, well, that's doing something. And I want to be saved by just trusting the Lord and doing nothing. Understand that the category of casting a vessel is really doing nothing. You didn't dig the well. You didn't find out that there's well there. You're not the one who even made the bucket. You didn't have made that rope. You, you just trust. But the Lord comes to our hearts and to our aid. He, he comes to the aid of those trembling hearts. And look at Isaiah 55.1. It says, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and ye. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This verse is basically saying, leave your bucket behind and leave your rope. Just come. And receive the water that I give you. You don't even have to have money in your hands for that water. And, and why would that be emphatic? In our, in our minds, because water is so cheap, you just turn the fountain. If you need a filter, you filter it, you drink it. And in, 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 essence, in essence, it's negligent, the price that you pay for that water. And you go to a river and drink, and it was for free. But in those places, water could be terribly expensive. And there's a story of one king, and I'll, I'll end with this. One Lacedaemonian king in the earlier days called Seuss, he and his whole army was cut off from their source of water. And the enemy army um, arranged a deal and agreed that if he were to give up all his conquests, he could have water from one source that he needed. He accepted So he gave up all his conquests. But then he offered to all those in his army that he would give his whole kingdom to those who would forbear drinking. Not a single one was found because they needed water. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross... No boys and girls, when Jesus was crucified, of the many things Jesus said, he said this, I thirst. The Lord Jesus was on the cross, and in essence he was saying, I will draw no more water from the wells of salvation. I will die to provide salvation. So Jesus had to thirst. He paid the highest price so that you could have this water of salvation. One look to Jesus in faith and you will be fully supplied. You will have peace. You will have pardon. You will have power spiritually because you will have the person of Christ through him the person of the Father, and through Him, the person of the Spirit, who will indwell you, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of flowing water. Let us be thankful for the wells of salvation this Thanksgiving season. Let us pray. 
Our gracious and glorious God, Thou art so good and so kind to speak to us, Lord, in ways that even little children would understand. We all know what wells are. We all know what sad thing it would be to arrive at a well and find no more water when we're very thirsty. We all know how important it would be to have a bucket and to have a rope. And Lord, this is where souls may be so distraught where they feel they have no faith and they have no repentance. Lord, we pray that Thou would give these graces. Lord, may not a single one of us believe that we are the ones who produce them, that we are the ones who are strong to have faith and repentance. Lord, we confess that we come before the empty-handed. We need the bucket and we need the rope. We need faith and repentance, Lord. And we pray that Thou would help us understand Thou art a God who answers prayer. There's not a soul in hell who has asked for these graces and never received. For Thou hast said in Thy very Word that even if we ask for the Holy Spirit, Thou wilt give Him. And so, Lord, we pray, may we be people who live by this well, who draw waters water out of the wells of salvation continuously for our whole lives. Even as we come to worship, we are drawing water out of these wells. And we pray, Lord, that Thou would bless every family, every individual to have certainty of these things. And we pray that not a single one presuming that he is fully satisfied to be among us, Lord, but that every heart would break and come to the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.